This is the Pro Football Doc Podcast with Dr. David Shaw. As a practicing orthopedic surgeon who's performed hundreds of procedures on NFL players and as the former longtime head team physician for the San Diego Chargers, Dr. Chow uses his insider knowledge to decipher injuries to a documented 95% accuracy level. He's the Sirius XM sports medical analyst and is quoted everywhere from Sports Center to NFL Live. More than 100,000 followers can't be wrong. Following him on Twitter, looking for his instant insights on injuries during games. Now, Dr. David Chow, the pro football doc. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pro Football Doc podcast. We're into the season. Week one is here. We are rolling. and We're headed into week two here. A lot of exciting football. Lots and lots and lots to uh, talk about here. Let's bring in our producer here, Greg Peterson. How would you think of week one, Greg? Absolutely wild. We saw some very high-scoring games, and we saw a team in the Miami Dolphins that, well, they made Lamar Jackson look like the second coming of Joe Montana with more speed. <laughs> they made me look bad with my Marquise Brown, too. <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness. Half, he had a great first half, nothing in the second half, but they didn't need anything in the second half from him. And it was uh, pretty, pretty interesting there. Well, we got a good show here today. We're going to talk about a lot of different things. Of course, we're going to do a rundown of all the different injuries, and there's lots of big injuries. We'll get to Foles, Tyreek Hill, Patrick Mahomes, Devin Funches, you name it. We'll get to all of that. But a couple of things first here. Uh, you know, it was a first for me, Greg. I actually watched football from a war room, so to speak, as opposed to at my house with the kids for the first time in a long time. So that was kind of uh, fun and different. We had a, a couple little technical issues. Uh, I didn't feel so bad when I was telling the, my video guy, hey, why can't we see Jacksonville, you know, Kansas City? What's up with that? And uh, then we come to realize that uh, there were technical difficulties in Jacksonville, and it wasn't even on our end. <laughs> well, you couldn't see much of Nick Foles in general in that game. Well, we saw enough that when he went down that uh, he broke his collarbone. That's the article that I wrote during the game. Yep. And let me ask you something about that, Greg. Why does there not seem to be much commotion? And I did not see the report, but apparently Gene Steratore, who I respect a lot, what didn't make a big deal about it either. Why, why was that not a body weight penalty? Oh, man, I don't know. Hopefully they're trying to get away from some of those because we remember last year they were just out of control. Clay Matthews, being a Green Bay Packers fan, I know all too well about that. Some of the body weight penalties were absolutely ridiculous. That's one that probably should have been called. It was not called. And then we see so many of the ones that don't get called do get called. So it's one of those situations where I feel like it's just a lack of preparation on the refs in general. I'm not even going to call it bad refereeing. I just think it's a bad rule in general that needs more clarity. Well, you know, I'm not a refereeing expert, but if I had to make an analogy, I would say, I would almost say Roby Coleman's of the Rams pass interference non-call in New Orleans last playoffs is a textbook example of that PI being missed. Well, this is a textbook example of body weight. I mean, drove the quarterback to the ground, landed on him, and launched. Both feet were in the air, if you look at the replay, when he came down. So, uh, And that rule is in place because of risk of injury. And 
before Nick Foles broke his collarbone. And, uh, of course, he broke it in 2014, which is why uh, I think, A, they're doing surgery, and, B, they're not rushing him, and they're going to put him on injured reserve, give him the full eight weeks before he comes back there. But it's non-throwing shoulder. If your guy uh, can come back in 10 weeks on the throwing side, certainly uh, Nick Foles can, your guy being Aaron Rodgers two years ago, uh, certainly Nick Foles can come back after an eight-game absence with his left collarbone, and I think he should be fine. But I find it interesting, it's early on the sample size, that Nick Foles himself might be getting Foles, right? I mean... Nick Foles, the last couple of years, came in and went li- played lights out for Carson Wentz, the starter, and his backup, Gardner Mishu, played pretty darn well, didn't he? I mean, <laughs> Nick Foles' backup is playing pretty darn well so far. Absolutely. Gardner Minshew, a rookie out of Washington State, sixth-round pick. I thought he should have went a little bit higher in the draft than he did because I really liked him in that Mike Leach offense. Now we know that Mike Leach's offense typically causes quarterbacks' numbers to be a little bit inflated, but at the same time, he was going out there and he was slinging it and he looked pretty good. A little bit of a statement on the Chiefs defense as well, but all in all, I like what I saw from him. Yep. Nick Foles wasn't the only clavicle fracture or clavicle issue. Devin Funches broke his clavicle. He'll have surgery and going into reserve. Tyreek Hill had an unusual clavicle injury. His clavicle didn't break, but only because the medial side towards the sternum, towards the chest, dislocated. And uh, that creates a whole set of its own problems, but usually the chain doesn't break break in two spots, so if it dislocates at the end, for example, if you get an AC joint sprain, you're not going to break your clavicle. Well, if you get an SC joint dislocation, you're not going to break your clavicle. So I don't know, but but I don't know which is worse, the uh, posterior SC joint dislocation of Tyreek Hill where you had to go to the hospital and have a procedure to have it reduced. Not surgery, but a procedure, and then stayed overnight in the hospital. And I said this yesterday, Greg, he is a potential candidate for injured reserve. And uh, Ian Rappaport said that today. They haven't made the decision yet, but that's the range. There is no way Tyreek Hill is coming back in the month of September. The month and of let August. me ask you this. You did mention that he doesn't need surgery, but he had a procedure done. Can you let the good people at home know the difference between the two? Because I think that, and I'm one of those people, it sounds very similar, but at the same time, it's very different in regards to what happens behind the scenes. Well, the technical difference is surgery implies cutting, and there was no cutting. There was no Band-Aid or bandage involved. There was no cutting of the skin. But a procedure, I mean, was likely put to sleep when they pulled on his collarbone and arm with against traction and and literally pop that sternoclavicular joint, move that clavicle forward out of the way of the great vessels. So he definitely had a procedure. They talked about it, but it technically is not surgery. Splitting hairs in terms of the fine points of the definition, I suppose. But uh, like I said, he he's going to be lucky to come back in October. So uh, we'll see. We'll see if he goes on injured reserve. I think it's still a uh, possibility. And I'm not name-dropping. Well, I can't name-drop without dropping the name, but I do have maintained some relationships throughout the league, and I actually got an interesting call from someone saying, hey, look, uh, why do you think there's all these clavicle issues today? Well, my first answer was, well, there are always clavicle issues. They're just usually more of them become AC joint sprains than clavicle fractures or SC joint dislocations. 
And some of it is just the speed of the game, the size of the players. And, you know, there may be a contribution, and this is how I explained it to this exec, there may be a contribution also with the shoulder pads. I mean, look at what Michael Bennett wears on his shoulders. I mean, that's an extreme example. But around the league, especially the skill position guys, pads are pretty small. They're, you know, go back, and you're probably too young for this, uh, but go back and even uh, when I was young, uh, one of my favorite players was Tony Dorsett. Now look at those big old shoulder pads. Uh, Google any picture of Tony Dorsett. Totally different. I actually, I actually do remember those because remember the good old Mean Joe Green Coke commercial. You could see all of his padding and everything like that. Those shoulder pads were much different than they are today. Yeah, and uh, that might have something to do with it, but it's the reverse. Uh, I'm not going Antonio Brown here, here, but the uh, number one helmet, Viscous Zero helmet, is heavier, sturdier, bigger, and can help with concussions, but does not prevent concussions, versus the smaller, shut Antonio Brown version. But everyone's now wearing, quotes shut or Antonio Brown shoulder pads. They're no longer the uh, Vice's Zero shoulder pads, as an analogy. Now, it's not like the bigger pads would for sure prevent all of this, but it might help. But that's just an interesting uh, point of uh, safety or otherwise there. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to our guest today, Warren Sharp. Everybody knows him by now, Sharp Football Analysis. And he'll be our second return guest. Evan Silva was the first. Excited to talk to Warren just in general because of his insight, but also love to get his take on the effort that I started in terms of the injury index. Far from perfect. We're still working it out, Greg, but we talked about how the Colts were less injured than the Chargers, and specifically the Chargers were going to be hampered in their run defense. And Marlon Mack had 174 yards rushing. So uh, they're not all that way. I wasn't certain about the Redskins offense in terms of manpower, but the Eagles defensively in the past game with all their DBs down in terms of injuries, I didn't think we're going to be a steel curtain exactly. And, and the Redskins got up early on them, uh, 17 nothing with, with some pass plays. So that's kind of what we're doing here. We're working through the kinks at profootballdoc.com. Love for the uh, podcast listeners to check it out. Just go there and sign up for free, no credit card, create a password with your email. You'll see the uh, in-game videos. You'll see the injury index where it's broken down. I think it can be really helpful for not only fantasy but DFS. And for those that are in states that are legal for gambling, it might help there too. But I'd love to get some uh, feedback from that. And I'll even ask Warren about that a little bit. But uh, let's take a quick break right now. And right when we come back from the break, we'll bring on uh, the great Warren Sharp. If you found $100 on the street and nobody was around to claim it, would you take it? Of course you would. So why do you keep picking winners without getting something for it? That's why you should head to MyBookie. It's fast, it's easy, and they pay when you win at MyBookie.ag. Let's face it, where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. It's also important to be confident when you're betting. Losing your original wager? Time to hedge at halftime? MyBookie offers a full menu of in-game bets. And if you like to bet a little to win a lot, check the parlays. 
And if that's not enough, this is more than enough. Join now and my bookie will double your first deposit up to $1,000. Use the promo code ProFootballDoc to activate the offer. Again, mybookie.ag and the promo code ProFootballDoc. My bookie. You play, you win, you get paid. This is the Pro Football Doc Podcast with Dr. David Schaff. All right, welcome back to the break. And here in this segment is our guest segment. Very pleased to welcome someone most of you know, and if you don't know, you absolutely should know, uh, Warren Sharp, Sharp Football Analysis. He really has the best analytics stuff out there, relevant, explains it in a very smooth and concise way. I'm pleased to call him a friend. Now for over a year, he's the greatest at what he does, and we'll uh, bring him on here to let us know what's happening in week one, going into week two, and some of his new efforts. So welcome to the show, Warren, for a second time. You're the second, second time guy. You were so good the first time, we couldn't wait to get you back on. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm happy to be here, Doc. Obviously, I'm sure you have a great show uh, in store for the people after week one of the NFL season and definitely happy to talk shop with you here. Well, you know, my material writes itself because it just happens. I'm always amazed at how you create your material and do all this stuff. So my first question is, you generate so many stats and so many different things. How big is your staff? <laughs> Well, that's a great question. For the first time ever, I decided to go out and bring some more people on board to kind of help write some content for the website, write some articles up at sharpfootballanalysis.com. So we've got uh, probably about like five guys who are like regular contributors. We also have a small fantasy department, about like three or four guys over there who, you know, some will write once a week, but uh, we're churning out a lot of really good fantasy content as well this year for the first time ever. So um, but in terms of like my actual statistics and doing the analysis, I'm still pretty much kind of doing all of that in-house, but I'm happy to have some other viewpoints on board for when it comes to writing articles and, and conducting those types of studies. Well, you're, you're always very gracious. You know, I've, I'm pleased to have helped you out a little bit uh, myself a little bit. But my main question was, you always come up with all these great numbers and analytics and all these great takes on what's going on. And seems like you need an army of people to do that. My point is, you still pretty much do it all by yourself, right? Yeah, I do. And, uh, you know, I, I quit my engineering job, as you, as I may have told you last off season. Mm-hmm. I had a, a civil engineering degree and uh, was working as a licensed professional engineer for a pretty big company and decided to pursue my passion. Um, I was already doing a lot of football work for over a decade on the side of things from a sports betting perspective. And uh, and then as teams started to reach out with their interest in uh, having me come on board to help them consult, I realized that this was really the direction my career should head. And I left the engineering world and, and have been working full time in football. And uh, definitely it helps that you can do a lot of this work from your home office, so to speak, and uh, working round the clock during football season is what helps me you know, accomplish as much as I do, I guess. If I could make an observation of your stuff, your stuff last year was great, no question. But your stuff this year is even better, and I think that reflects that you're putting full-time effort into it, right, as opposed to evenings and weekends. And so congratulations to all of that. Thank you. Definitely 
Definitely appreciate it. It means a lot. I certainly value your reputation and your opinion uh, tremendously. You, you obviously have a long tenured career doing this, uh, doing this stuff and working in the league. So uh, that definitely means a lot. I appreciate it. All right. So let's, you have some key things that you talk about. One of them being covered a lot, passing rate on first down and success. Do you, do you think everyone has just caught on to a trend? Is it just luck week one here that some of those numbers might be changing? Or is your influence across the league, people are starting to listen? Which which is it? And give me some of your takeaways from week one. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all of those things. Um, You know, I've been one of several people who have been pounding the table. Now that we have more information and data is better accessible to analyze the NFL, it's clear that passing is more efficient than running the football. And one of the things that I've been, you know, I'm so big on early down success rate and efficiency on early downs and trying to get a first down on a first or second down. Don't try to just get to third and manageable, skip third down entirely. And it's definitely been one of the tenets that I've been preaching on Twitter for years now. And what we've seen um, this offseason, well, this offseason is a little bit of a shift in that direction. The results week one, I think, are a little bit high. I would love it if this were to continue the entire season. I bet it comes back to earth a little bit. But we are seeing in week one, 59% of early down play calls, that's first and second down, 59% of those play calls have been passes. Now compare that to 2018, it was only 54%. And 2017, it was only 52%. So teams have moved from nearly a coin flip, whether they were going to run or pass on first and second down, up to about a 60-40 split. Now, week one, again, may come back down to earth. I think it probably will, but it's extremely encouraging. You know, week one of the 2018 season, week one of the 2017 season, definitely not as much passing as we're seeing this year. And so uh, passes are being uh, are more efficient than ever. I mean, the yards per attempt on these passes is up at 8.0 yards per attempt. It was 7.5 in 2018 and 7.2 in 2017. So they're passing more. These plays are more efficient. And now they're gaining about two times the yardage as a early down run. Early down runs are only gaining 4.1 yards per carry, passes 8.0. We're talking about you're twice as likely to gain the yardage if you just decide to throw the football. And, uh, and so more teams are headed in that direction. I hope it carries forward throughout most of the season. So using that logic, Obviously, there's a limit to it. At what point is ideal? In other words, clearly you can't pass 95% of the time. The advantage would go away. Or, or would it go away? I mean, if you're really getting double the yardage when you pass, what should the number be? Should it be at 60? Should it be 80? Should it be 95? Should it be 100? You know, being silly there. But what should that number be, you think? Right. I, I think it's definitely higher than 60. It depends on the team and the situation that they're in, obviously the play calls. But I think you want to be pressing like close to 68, 70%, if possible, um, as kind of like the average, right? And the what would determine whether or not you end up passing the football ultimately would be what the box count is of the opposing defense. If they're slacked off and they're playing the pass at this point on your first and 10 play, and you have a numbers advantage by audibling to a run, then you need to do that. Uh, you know, most of these teams, they're still keeping a running back out there on first down, even if they're passing the football. A lot of teams are using play action, um, but I think more teams need to be uh, basically calling pass plays and audibling to runs 
if the defense is actually playing pass and is flagged off too far, and if they're using uh, different you know personnel groupings that will not hold up well against the rundown. So I'm really optimistic that we're getting to that point in time where coaches are becoming more and more intelligent and will kind of creep closer and closer to where we need to get sooner rather than later. It still might take a few years, but that's a long way from a few years ago. Yeah, it, I agree with you 100%. One question that I've always had, and this included when I was in the league, let's say it's third and, and one or fourth and one. Maybe some teams do this, but I've talked to a lot that don't. I mean, why wouldn't you, as you say, take what the defense gives you? If the defense is loading the box in, on first down, then you should pass. And if they're not, then they're inviting you to run, then run. On, on a on a fourth and one, why wouldn't you go up the line of scrimmage? If neither, if one a gap is not covered, that is an automatic sneak. You'll get the one yard. If both a backs are covered, you just look at where the middle linebacker is. If he's back, you can't go over the top. You should go fullback belly. If he's up, you go over the top. Right? I mean, to me, you got to take what the defense gives you on, on whatever the situation is and go and. Not that it's an audible where you give the quarterback complete flexibility, but let him look at the defense and then, you know, go to the predetermined play that you have that you call in the huddle. I agree 100%. The chips are stacked against the defense right now. With the rules construct that we've currently got in the league, everything pretty much favors the offense, right? And so if the only way the defense is going to gain an upper hand is if as an offense you become predictable or you are playing into the defense's hands based upon their playing run and you just decide to run the ball anyways, right? Running into like eight, nine man boxes. Those are the only ways that you are giving chips as an offense back to the defense. If you simply play intelligent offense and you're making play calls and audibles and adjusting to what the defense is doing, there's absolutely no way or reason that that defense should have an upper hand against you, unless it comes down to sheer talent, like across the board. Uh, as a play caller, it's like it's the best time to be in the NFL. I think as a play caller, you'll have no better time because you're able to do so much with these offenses, and the quarterbacks have been trained so well to do a variety of things, starting in high school through college, that they can handle so many different things. Um, and then you, as a play caller, with the rules in your favor just have so much freedom and flexibility uh, that it's a shame that some of these guys do not take advantage of what the defense gives them and, and, and play based upon that opponent, make play calls and variations to their objectives each single time. Oh, absolutely. It certainly makes sense there. Well, an example of adapting to situations and, and taking advantage of what you have, let's look at the Patriots. These are your stats and numbers. I mean, I thought this was pretty amazing. In 2018, the Patriots had 24 plays without a tight end. Obviously, they had Gronk, and they were at some points pretty run-heavy, especially late in the season. But yesterday, they had more plays without a tight end in one game than they did all last season. That's unbelievable. Yeah, 20 personnel. They're using 20 personnel. I actually I actually forecast, I think, when, when A.B. was traded, there went on Saturday. Or when it, when he signed there, I said we may see the highest twenty person. They may go one hundred percent twenty personnel. I mean, obviously, I was joking, but twenty personnel, uh, as your listeners probably know, that's two running backs, zero tight ends. That's twenty, and then you got three wide receivers. And with the three wide receivers 
they've got in terms of Josh Gordon, Julian Edelman, and Antonio Brown starting week two onwards. I mean, how can you find a better three three wide receivers to trot out there? And if you don't have a solid tight end, then throw two backs out there. And you can pretty much do whatever you want as an offense out of that grouping. But your point is very astute. The New England Patriots are the NFL's best team at adapting to their personnel and adjusting to what is working in a particular game. They will take a strategy entering that game, and they've got backup plan after backup plan that they've prepared heading into this game. If X doesn't work, we're going to do Y. If Y doesn't work, we're going to do Z. And they just work down the list. And they are very quick to move off of something that they wanted to do that isn't working and adjust to do something else. They're also very good at just moving their personnel around and doing things that are going to benefit them the most. Um, and so we, we see them. They change their stripes all the time. And that's what makes them so dangerous. It's all, if it's not enough to have a great in-game decision maker like Bill Belichick and a coach who's one of the best at preparing his defense and his team in general for an opponent, and a quarterback like Tom Brady, it's a team that's constantly evolving and finding the most easy path to victory to defeat an opponent. It just you're, you're making everybody else play with one or two arms tied behind their backs when you do that. Yeah, and, and one of the things, tell me if I'm thinking the right way, but one of the things that I've observed about the Patriots that are different for Bill Belichick, that are different than, than other coaches, is that, yes, Every team morphs week to week, but it seems like many teams install new plays and their definition of a new play is 50 power still, but from a different formation, right? Basically the same play design with just a different look. The Patriots literally run new plays. Uh, and here's what I mean. First of all, in fantasy, you know, one week it's Edelman and he's amazing. And the next next week it's James White and the next week it's Sony Michelle. It's never the same person, and I think that's by design. And if you remember back, Warren, the Jaguars in New England AFC Championship game two years ago, when Brady injured his thumb on a handoff in practice. I mean, no one runs the wrong way that late in the season unless you're with the Patriots or the or it's a mistimed. Handoff. It turned out, I believe, it was a jet sweep to Rex Burkhead, where Tom Brady had to turn blind in a one-hand handoff on a timing play. That happens late season because you're still installing new plays, and I think that's the difference with the Patriots. Most other teams say, "Oh, this play works for us," and they just keep going to the well, maybe changing the look and disguising it. The Patriots, it seems to me, when they have a play that works with a personnel group that works, they shelve it. And then try and bring it back in week 12 or 15 when, when they need it. In the meantime, they're looking for new things. And that's why they're able to adapt through injuries and other things. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. Uh, once again, this is a team that is just so good at trying to find the most optimal way to beat you. The quickest path to victory. And they're very willing to modify anything they need to in order to achieve that goal. They will draw up new plays on the sidelines in the middle of games that they weren't planning on using. They've never come up with before. It wasn't in their install, but based on the way the defense is doing something, based on a certain route that they ran at one point in time during that game, they're going to come up with a new play off of that mid-game and you know score like 60-yard touchdowns on. It's absolutely incredible uh, the the ends to which this team will will go in order to win games. They're so willing to change 
any and everything if it's going to give them the easiest way to win this game. And that's the thing. I think far too many teams, like you mentioned, they have identities. They have kind of philosophies and these core principles that they don't really want to stray too far from. So they might build up a minor tweak here or there or try to do a little bit more of this or that. But until you're willing to risk everything for what you think is going to win you this game, you're really not maximizing the leverage that you have to win that game. Gotcha. Well, let me ask you one more question before I I want to talk about your new service a little bit. One final question here, and hopefully it's a fun one. I did ask the question you wanted me to ask Philip Rivers about a month ago. How did I do? And and what did you think of his answer about the quarterback sneak? Warren, for the listeners, Warren Warren wanted me to tell him, ask Philip Rivers when he's on, why does he never run a quarterback sneak? Yeah, no, I was very thankful that you asked that question and you you followed up with some good logic. um, And and certainly he kind of, I guess he danced around the question, but what did he blame it on? The fact that uh, his, his knee injury or just the fact that he'd rather turn it around, turn around and hand the ball off to these guys who are who are like in the game to run the football. And he trusts their ability to run the football a little bit more than, you know, putting himself in that predicament. Uh, but, un, un, you know, unfortunately for the Chargers, now I did see it was funny in that game. He didn't run a quarterback sneak like up the gut for a fourth down, but it was a fourth and one, and he ran out of bounds there uh, right before the end of regulation to uh, to send the game to overtime. He got the first down, but then the clock ended. He definitely could help his team more often. Uh, we'll be completely blunt if he decided to sneak the ball a little bit more. Um, that that team really could improve their fourth down efficiency, even third down, third and short efficiency. Um, I know it's sounds good that, hey, these running backs are here to run the football. But the fact of the matter is, bidding your back to the offense and running backwards a few yards to hand the ball to another guy, when the first down marker is one yard in front of you and you got a big offensive line that's just going to plow right in front of you, I mean, the percentages are crystal clear. There's no easier way to gain a first down in short yarded situations than just to quarterback sneak it. And he never does it, but Maybe he will this year. I don't know. I've got, I'm holding yeah, out wait, hope. Wait, wait. Yeah, when he said it, he said he wasn't opposed to it, and he said it really wasn't his need. But he said for, for years he didn't do it because, A, you have Lorenzo Neal in the backfield. Either you can give it to him on a fullback belly, or he can plow his own hole, and, and you have LT or Michael Turner or Sproles or someone right behind him to get the first down. And he said he wasn't really opposed to doing it, et cetera. But, but uh, you know, I'm not exactly a journalist, so I was like, well, I'll actually – Ask a pseudo journalist question. <laughs> so, yeah, was, uh, I liked it. Uh, I was a, a little bit fun. All right. Well, Warren, uh, tell us about your new site and uh, what it offers and, and what what's going on over there. Well, at sharpfootballanalysis.com, we're basically trying to provide the insight into the world of analytics that's very easy to understand by a lot of people. Like it's, it's analytics and it's complex thoughts designed for mass consumption by just general people who want to become educated about football. And we have a lot of great content that we're producing on a regular basis, but we're, we're still and, and always will be the hub of sports betting related information. And I have uh, sports betting predictions on NFL games. Uh, I'm very good from a college, uh, sorry, from a NFL totals perspective, hitting 60% of those recommendations lifetime over 13 years now. This is the 14th season. And uh, so that's definitely my forte. But we've also expanded. We brought on uh, one of your friends, Evan Silva, his old buddy, 
uh, Rich Rebar from Roto World. And Rich is doing our fantasy content, heading that up. He's producing a lot of articles every single week. So we're trying to hit fantasy. We're trying to hit sports betting. And then, of course, we have a lot of great content that's just analytics and understanding the game of football and, and trying to understand what coaches should or shouldn't be doing a little bit more often. And it's a lot of fun, a lot of re- stuff to read and, and, and stats to play around with when you go over there. Well, your, your stuff is always great. And uh, you know what I call your stuff if people don't know what you do? I, I'll call you the Dan Orlowski and I'll call Dan the Warren Sharp in their particular field. Dan explains quarterback decision-making and progression so well on ESPN. And you explain analytics uh, so well. You really, in your site, you really cover almost all of it. The one small slice that uh, hopefully I can still help you and your uh, listeners with is the injury side. With, and I think the most exciting new thing is the injury index, where predictably, if you would look at, let's say, this last week's Charger game, we talked about it earlier, that the Colts, in theory, were the more injured team with Andrew Luck uh, retiring and being out. But really, the 21 other starters all returned and were healthy, whereas the Chargers had Derwin James and Russell Okung. But more importantly, they had several linebackers that were less than 100%. And uh, one of the things that we looked at from an injury perspective is that the Chargers were not that healthy against the run based on personnel. Not on scheme, not on coaching, not on quality of team. Sometimes you can make up for it. But just based on whatever Warren Sharp says about the Chargers' run defense, this week in week one may not all be there because their personnel isn't there because of injuries. And it's just one example, but obviously Marlon Mack had 174 yards. It's not always so perfect like that. That's probably the one hole that we're trying to add to what you're doing on your site because your site really does 95% of it, does it all. Yeah, and I, I've definitely uh, registered at your site and checked out your free injury index for the first uh, four weeks of the season and, and certainly looked at what you had up there for week one. Uh, a lot of good good matchup-based um, injury information and uh, certainly looking forward to getting more of that um, as the season continues. Well, Warren, thank you very much for the time. We're at our 20 minutes that you could afford for us. You're back to your analytic stuff. Really appreciate the time and uh, chatting with you and fun. And uh, uh, let's do some more stuff. I appreciate it. Love it, Doc. Thanks for having me on. Hope you enjoyed the rest of this, uh, this week one and uh, enjoy week two. I'm, it's going to be here before we know it. More now with Dr. David Chow, the pro football doc. All right, welcome back to the Pro Football Doc Podcast. Final segment here, third and final segment. Always fun to talk to Warren Sharp here. But let's run through some injuries. We talked about uh, Nick Foles. Let's go through a couple other quarterbacks. Patrick Mahomes, he's not out of the woods on his injury. By video, that was a high ankle sprain. He showed his toughness in moxie finishing the game. He's got arm strength, so him not stepping into throws is not as big a deal as some other quarterbacks, although a couple throws were high in the second half. But he's going to be more sore this week than even during the game before he gets better. Don't be surprised if he misses some practice. Don't be fooled by Andy Reid's. It's just an ankle sprain. It is, but it's a high ankle type. It's milder variety. He won't be himself the, the month of September, I don't think, in terms of all the running and mobility that he normally has. Uh, but he still can be quite effective. So keep an eye on Patrick Mahomes and his ankle still. Baker Mayfield, 
keep an eye on him too. I'm not saying the injury is horrible, but it's more than just a wrist or hand. It involves his thumb. When he left the game, his thumb was clearly wrapped. and There were pictures. And so hopefully it doesn't swell. Hopefully there's nothing more. But anything that involves the thumb affects grip, your ability to spin the ball, your ability to be accurate uh, often is controlled by your thumb as well. So uh, that's something to keep a close eye on. I'm not saying that this was the reason, but certainly uh, after the uh, safety, he ended up in the fourth quarters throwing three picks. I'm not saying that was be- just because of his thumb, but it's something to keep an eye on there. Let's talk about some uh, running back issues. Darius Geis apparently is reported to have a meniscus issue in his, quote, other knee, non-ACL knee. We've said before that I don't have a lot of confidence in Darius Geis this year because of his left knee. He was 10 carries for 18 yards, and in fact, Adrian Peterson was on the bench, not even on the bench, wasn't even dressed. And now there's an issue with his other knee. Can't say for sure that was compensation, but reports are he had an MRI and he is hoping for a meniscus sprain. A meniscus doesn't even get sprained, but that's a whole other issue. We'll see what happens. I think Adrian Peterson is their guy again for for a little bit. Uh, and that might be good for Darius Geist to, to give him a chance to catch up on the other knee. Joe Mixon by video was a standard low ankle sprain. I believe he has a chance to play next week for the Bengals. Tevin Coleman is not so lucky, apparently. He has a high ankle sprain. He's going to be out a few weeks, probably into October. There's an outside chance of even injured reserve, but right now it looks like he'll he'll be out into October for the 49ers. Greg, let's run through some uh, wide receivers. Devin Funchess, bad news, broke his collarbone, injured reserve and surgery. He'll be back after eight games. Tyreek Hill, the much-talked-about SC joint injury, sternoclavicular joint injury. Just didn't make sense to me when there was a report that said Tyreek Hill went to the hospital after a right shoulder injury. Look, we rarely as team physicians send people to the hospital. We're prepared at the stadium. And I can't imagine there would be a reason that I would ever send someone to the hospital for a shoulder injury. Turns out it wasn't the shoulder. He landed on the right shoulder. The injury was caused at the other end of the collarbone, at the at the sternum, at the breastbone. And that collarbone displaced posteriorly, potentially pressing on some of the great vessels, which is why they sent him to the hospital, and that was the right thing to do. There was a procedure, not a surgery, likely anesthesia, and reduced that joint, stayed overnight in the hospital. This is an injury where he is going to miss some significant time. This season is not over. That's the good news. The bad news is September is for sure over and likely his October. The decision has been made. Ian Rappaport has tweeted that the Chiefs are weighing their options. An injured reserve is indeed an option. But he'd be a designated to return guy. I think it's still likely he goes on injured reserve. This is eight games and comes back. If he doesn't, he's still going to miss six games or, or or more. Sammy Watkins, wow, uh, had a great game. And uh, we talked about it on this podcast with Evan Silva a little bit, how he was optimistic, and I was somewhat optimistic with Sammy Watkins. But there was a quote I saw from Sammy Watkins, quote, we need to find a way to win in the next six or seven weeks. 
if that doesn't give you an idea of where they think Tyreek Hill is headed. Another wide receiver, Juju Schuster-Smith, late in the game, a toe issue. By video, he avoided a, the dreaded turf toe, so I think he's going to be okay for next week. We'll see how it sorts out. Better be. The Steelers have to, have to rebound, but I don't think he has anything bad. A.J. Green fans, I think I have some bad news. He was still in a walking boot at the game. At least he traveled, I guess. But look, if you're in a walking boot one week this week, let's say you get out of it later this week, you start jogging next week, you start running the week after, you start cutting and maybe practicing the week after that, you're at week five before he plays. So the original playing week three hope I think is out the window. I think he's going to be out through week four and lucky to play week five at this point in time. So uh, the the timeline on A.J. Green is uh, pushed back. Marcus Cannon was dumped on his left shoulder. Let's hope that's an AC joint sprain. He was seen in a sling. It could have been a posterior shoulder subluxation, which might have him missing some more time. We'll have to see about that. Lindstrom, the uh, first-round pick with the Falcons, uh, has a broken foot. That's now been confirmed. We don't know which bone, but that's easily an eight-week deal. On the defensive side of the ball, C.J. Mosley with a groin injury day-to-day, which might mean week-to-week. Quinnen Williams, also of the Jets, with an ankle sprain. We'll have to follow him. Another Steelers defender, Joe Hayden, with an AC joint sprain. I'm optimistic. He'll miss some practice time, but I'm optimistic he'll play next week. T.J. Watt. Missed some time, but I don't. I have to do more reconnaissance on his injury. For the Eagles, Malik Jackson, not so lucky. Uh, he's going to miss significant time. By video, it might be a list rank. Redskins D-lineman Jonathan Allen with an MCL will miss some time, but not as much as Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Smith, the Ravens' number one corner, is going to miss significant time, likely four or six weeks or so. Injured reserve is Probably not in his future, but it's not ruled out. So I think he's a four, maybe six-week deal with his MCO. There's kind of a quick rundown of all the injuries of the week, quite a number of them. We got any questions there, Greg, or you got any questions? I really am not seeing any, but my question for you is, just with regards to these joint practices versus the teams that actually did play in the preseason, did you notice any sort of a difference between them in regards to injuries? Because I think that that's a very important topic that needs to be brought up. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, uh, the Texans would certainly say there's more injuries if you play because they lost Lamar Jackson, right? But I don't know. Um, there's certainly more acclimation injuries, if potentially more cramps and hamstrings typically. But I'd have to, that's a good question, Greg. I'd have to do a, a study because I, I guess I didn't fully pay attention to which teams played starters and which teams uh, didn't play starters. But I think that's an interesting question. You have to at least finish with a uh, beast of the week, a traditional one. Uh, several different candidates of beast of the week. I mean, uh, Nick Foles just walking off after he broke his collarbone and same with Devin Funches are certainly candidates. But I got to give it to Patrick Mahomes. I didn't think he could show me anything else after his 2008 season. I'm not, Greg, I'm not one of these guys who likes the next new bright, shiny object. I'm like, eh, I don't know. Let me, sh- let him show me some more. I don't know. He hasn't done, he's only done it for one year and only done it for three games. Patrick Mahomes 
from the jump, I'm like, wow, he's different, special. And he showed it all of last year. And uh, I didn't think there could be anything else he could show me. I mean, he already showed us throwing a ball out of a stadium and, you know, crazy stuff. But he showed me something more. That's why he's the beast of the week. He had a high ankle sprain, went off with a blue tent, got missed one, got taped and missed one play and came back, was clearly hobbled. This is a high ankle sprain now and maybe a milder variety, but still a high ankle sprain. And he really showed me some moxie. And by the way, when you tape a high ankle sprain, it doesn't really help you very much. <laughs> it, the, the way that you get a high ankle sprain in terms of rotation, taping is hard to, to do. So I can imagine it that it wouldn't do much. I don't understand why so many people think it does, because I just don't imagine tape doing much for a sprain. Well, let's put it this way. It's well known after 30 minutes of any ankle tape job gets loose. So exactly. <laughs> it doesn't do a lot. But for high ankle sprains, it really doesn't do a lot either. Proprioception maybe, but that's why uh, Patrick Mahomes is my uh, beast of the week. I didn't think he could show me anymore, but he did. So uh, hats off to him there. So that's our show for today. Thank you to Warren Sharp. Thanks for listening. And uh, please check out the uh, ProFootballDoc.com site. It's all free right now, so check it out, and hopefully it's helpful for you. I'll give you one thing where it might have helped. I mean, I didn't know these bets existed, but uh, there was an Ezekiel Elliott 15 carries wager, and uh, I was bantering with people on Twitter. Now, you can't get down for, for thousands of dollars, but I think there's some low mit- limits, $100, $200, $300. But if you put $200 on Ezekiel Elliott under 15 carries, like I've been saying and we said on the site, you would have won some easy money. $200 is $200. I wouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth there. So hopefully we can uh, come up with some more of these fun things. Greg, I'm never going to be a tout. I'm never going to make picks. I'm never going to keep records like uh, Warren Sharp does and who's right and what's wrong. But hopefully the only records I'll keep is if we're accurate and giving you the good injury information. But what you do with it for fantasy, DFS, or gambling are on your own. So thanks, Greg, and thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll chat next week or in the meantime, hopefully through the ProFootballDoc.com site. Thank you.